Questions bring us together. Answers alienate us. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Peter Block, a leading consultant and best-selling author whose work is about empowerment, stewardship, chosen accountability, and the reconciliation of community. He's a partner in Designed Learning, a training company that offers workshops designed by Peter to build the skills outlined in his books. He received a master's degree in industrial administration from Yale in 1963 and has received national awards for outstanding contributions in the field of training and development, including the American Society for Training and Development Award for Distinguished Contributions, the Association for Quality and Participation President's Award, and Training Magazine HRD Hall of Fame. His new book is An Other Kingdom, Departing the Consumer Culture. If you're getting value out of this show, please go to oneyoufeed.net slash support and make a donation. This will ensure that all 185 episodes that are in the archive will remain free and that the show is here for other people who need it. Some other ways that you can support us is if you're interested in the book that we're discussing on today's episode, go to oneyoufeed.net and find the episode that we're talking about. There will be links to all of the author's books, and if you buy them through there, it's the same price to you, but we get a small amount. Also, you can go to oneyoufeed.net slash book, and I have a reading list there 
oneyoufeed.net slash shop, and you can buy t-shirts, mugs, and other things. And finally, oneyoufeed.net slash Facebook, which is where our Facebook group is, and you can interact with other listeners of the show and get support in feeding your good wolf. Thanks again for listening. And here's the interview with Peter Block. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you on. Your most recent book is called An Other Kingdom, Departing the Consumer Culture. And so we will get into that in great detail here in just a couple minutes. But let's start like we always do with a parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, In life there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops, and he thinks about it for a second, and he looks up at his grandfather, and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. So I will start with a dream. So I always had this dream that I'm on a dark street late at night, and some people are coming up behind me, aiming in my direction, men, and I'm scared. It's always a panicky kind of dream. And so I asked a friend of mine about this dream, and he said, what do you think they wanted? And I said, I think they wanted to destroy me, rob me, kill me. And then I thought for a minute, I said, is there another way of thinking, which never occurred to me? And he said, yeah, perhaps they wanted to be seen. And so that shifted for me that what I thought was danger. When I feared the wolf at the door, maybe the wolf was just hungry. He's not after me. And so that parable tells me that even though it was a dark night and there is a shadow side to all of us, the way we see that shadow, interpret that shadow, is the nature of our transformation. And so my work has been trying to reconstruct how I see and how the world sees these dark characters looming in the distance. And every cynic, and every time you lose faith, you always have evidence to prove it. But the evidence never includes your choice of how you see the world. It's like people say to me, you push my button. And I heard someone say, yeah, but I didn't install it. (laughs) What you're trying to do with this with your theme here of the wolf, is to reconstruct the nature of a button in which how I respond to the world, honoring the dark side, honoring in this book, the idea of Pharaoh, the idea we're all caught up in slavery, all this stuff. But then how I see the world is decisive. It's called context. And so to me, that parable, so this is one thought. It's asking for a shift in context. The other thing, it's very individualistic. It says your life, my son or my grandson, will be determined by how you show up in the world. And we have very few parables about how we show up in the world. Excellent. That's a long answer to a question you didn't ask. But uh, no, I, I certainly <laughs> asked. So thank you for the answer. So let's start off and talk about the book and... In the book, you say we have a dominant cultural narrative best described as the free market consumer 
ideology. So talk me through what are you trying to say when you say that? I'm saying we're living in a world that assumes as true that upward mobility is the point. It assumes as true that expanding businesses, taking things to scale, is the way nature is. And the dominant narrative has caused me to be ambitious, individualistic, all right, competitive, and to think I am defined by my average annual income. Every parent says to the child, I want you to be happy. What they really mean is I want you to do well. So when I'm dependent on you in my later years, you're up for it. And so we've monetized our experience. We've commercialized our transaction. The marketplace used to be a Saturday morning occurrence where people came together to be together, and then they bought and sold stuff, you know, because they it, it sustained them. Now the marketplace is headline news. We've elected a president whose major accomplishment is his wealth. It's his economic prowess, his toughness. And so that's what we're trying to. So we trying to, I try to describe it gently. All right. And, and, but the belief that my well-being is somehow defined by my uh, economic, my ability to shop. And I'm part of that. I love the notion I shop. Therefore, I am. <laughs> so that is our kind of the consumer ideology that we live under. And you say that that free market consumer ideology has four pillars to it. You talk about scarcity, certainty, perfection, and privatization. So let's spend a couple minutes on each of those and, and explain for the listeners what's so bad about that approach. Because the way you described it, on one hand, I, you know, there's a part of me, I've read the book, and I go, well, that, yeah, I, I get it. On the other hand, it's like that is the dominant cultural paradigm. So what's the problem? The problem is that if we believe that we don't have enough scarcity, then we decide that uh, I win, you lose, you win, I lose. And that's framed in the first grade when I'm told that we're going to grade you on a normal curve. And so my job is to compete with my classmates. Until I went to the first grade, I thought learning was fun. So the problem with that is it alienates us from each other. It, I, all these uh, mindsets create a deep sense of isolation. So in my workplace, I think I'm in competition with the person next to me. And so the scarcity mindset is a lie. There is enough. Whenever there's a crisis, you know, the day-to-day -day is we're poor, we owe too much. But when there's a crisis, we have all the money we need. When it's time to bail out the world, all the money. So it tells me that in my town, Cincinnati, there's an enormous amount of money. So why do I act as if there's not? In the world, there's an enormous amount of food. So why are we marketing hunger? And so that's the scarcity thing. Uh, the certainty is the appeal of a totalitarian world. The reason high control uh, leaders are in the ascendance these days is because we're afraid of the future. We think it should be predictable. 
So anybody who runs for office, any leader of any organization, any talk show host who offers certainty has a magnetic appeal. And yet, if you look at your own life, most of the time you didn't know what the hell was going on. None of us work uh, in a field that we studied. So the idea you should be, you know, to ask every child, what do you want to be when you grow up? The honest answer was, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> but we, we lie to give us the feeling. And to me, the longing for certainty is the, is the basis for a high-control world, high-control organization. The media now has got five organizations that run the media, you know, and it's not that liberal. All of these uh, are forms of modern concession. Okay, is the world that way? Do I need certainty? Is there not enough? Uh, is there something wrong with me? So the longing for perfection says that God created me, but he made a mistake in this case. And so the wish to be perfect is the wish to be God. And so we're always, you know, high standards, goals, stuff like that. And so all of these uh, conspire or work together to uh, chip away at our freedom, chip away at our humanity, our ability to connect with each other. Those are big costs. And then the last one is the privatization piece. Well, the privatization is the implementation plan of the first three. It says that you cannot trust the collective. Anything with CO starting it, cooperative, communal, is dangerous. And so it, it says that in order to live the life of the first three, I have to argue against government. I have to argue against the common good. In, in 1620 or something, the King of England privatized the commons. And so the, the, the common land meant I could sustain myself. When they put a fence around the common land, the common good, uh, all of a sudden I had to move to the city and get a job. So the privatization is the action step. It's the belief that the public sector, the communal sector, uh, communal interest, land trust, common good, uh, tragedy of the commons by James Harden in 1969 has been refuted, and he refuted it. But he says if you hold land in common, you'll destroy the land. And so to me, it's been, uh, it's been the way of rationalizing my longing for certainty, my wish to be perfect. And so we have to become, uh, we have to question whether the private sector, the private life, the life I lead alone in my home with an automatic garage door open is really in my interest. And it's a tough one because these are all deep beliefs. And so you would say that it's not in our interest because it's not working, because people are generally less and less happy in life, that, that, that there's a greater sense of meaninglessness and isolation and that we're suffering from that? Yes, and it's not about being happy. It's about having financial and relational control over my life. So, you know, there's economics. Have happiness is a kind of a funny promise because everything else offers says happiness is the point. Maybe meaning is the point. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe having a purpose is the point. Maybe the problem about our anxiety about our youth is not that they're young people. Maybe the problem is we've rendered them useless. And maybe they need a purpose. Maybe when we house the elderly in warehouses of comfort, maybe loneliness is what kills them, not old age. And so I think it's deeply isolating and uh, makes us deeply cynical, makes us support leaders regardless. And it's not about being left or right or anything like that. And so I think it's about, it's a search for meaning. It's, it's uh, Victor Frankl was in a concentration camp. So he was not the, living in a high consumers, and he found meaning in the fact that he chose to breathe, and he realized he had control over his own sense of freedom, even though he couldn't move. So I think it's about freedom and meaning. Right. He had realized he had control over his own reaction on a Similar note, I was watching something the other day and saw, I never say his name right, Eli? Eli Weisel. Weisel, thank you. Chris, edit that out so I sound smart. Um, you have to be a Jew to be able to pronounce it. <laughs> are you Jewish? No, I'm not. That's why I can't do it. Now you are. Now, now you I, are. I, just, I just brought you in. Anyway, I Chris, saw him. Edit that out, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's good. I'm now belonging. Ellie, um, Ellie, Ellie Weisel. I heard him say uh, something near the end of his life, which was um, always think higher and feel deeper. And that just sort of, I when I think of concentration camps, he came to mind. And I just thought that was such a beautiful phrase. It is. And with respect to consumerism, it's an it's a experience against thinking higher and feeling deeper. Yeah. Because the promise of consumerism is that no matter how much you have, it's not enough. Yep. Now, do you think that that is a tendency in us that has been exacerbated by consumerism or that it's been created by consumerism? Because it does seem to be a human condition to a certain degree to, to want more, to always sort of think, well, what's the next thing? Or, or do you really think that that's more of a modern creation? I think it's the creation of modernism. Because before modernism, before the 1600s, when it all began, people uh, found the earth sacred. They found history compelling, tradition compelling, the circle form compelling. They couldn't imagine changing their status in life. And so I think it is a product of modernism. It's not anywhere near our nature. Now, it doesn't mean our nature doesn't have a dark side and a greedy side and a violent side. And a disobedient side. I mean, Adam and Eve made that point. But I don't think it's in our nature to want more than I have. I think in the absence of a memory and affection for a place and be surrounded by people that even though I don't get along with, I know we're going to take care of each other, then more is a corruption of my nature. I don't believe that. I have a friend who's a nun. And so we do a lot of work trying to end poverty. And I looked at her after a conference about ending poverty. And I, I said, Monica, wait a second. You chose poverty. What's going on here? She says, the reason I chose poverty is because in exchange for my choice was community. That I knew no matter what I did, no matter how productive I was, 
or how spiritual I was, that this was a group of people that would care for me for the rest of my life. And that's as much my nature as wanting more. The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They can Condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. Our sponsor this week is StoryWorth, and I absolutely love this idea. It's a great way to connect with your family, to learn more about your relatives, and to preserve your memories. The way I'm using it is I gave the subscription to my father, and so every week my father will be sent a question that he answers via email or their website or the app, and then at the end of the year, they will bind all that together into a book, and I'll have a little book of my father's stories and memories. We can put pictures in it. It's a wonderful way, and I can make as many copies of that as I would like to for the various people in my family. The other thing is, as he answers those questions, I can have him sent each week to an unlimited number of people. So I can send it to his brothers, I can send it to my brother, my sister, my son, you know, so he can learn more about his grandfather. It's a great way to capture all these things. And one of the things I love about it is we talk on the show all the time about taking small steps. And I get caught in this idea of, well, I'm going to write down all my memories and my stories, or you know what, I want to interview my dad and get all that stuff before he passes on. But I never do it because I'm trying to do this big, big thing. And this is wonderful because a question a week, a story a week gets done. And at the end of a period of time, you've got something really wonderful. It's that small steps add up to something remarkable. 
This is a great gift for the holidays. You can give it to someone you love, or another way to use it is give it to yourself, and you answer the questions, and then you present all that to someone you love. A great way for your children to know more about you, for your grandchildren to know more about who you are. The questions are great. You can write your own. They've got tons and tons of options. A couple that I've chose so far is... What was your dad like when you were a child? And another is, who is the wisest person you've known? What have you learned from them? And I can't wait to hear what my dad has to say to those two questions. So again, I love this idea. I love the sponsor. And I think you will too. So go to storyworth.com wolf, and you can get $20 off your first subscription. Again, go to storyworth.com wolf to get $20 off your first order. I think this is a great idea, and I encourage you all to check it out. And now back to the interview. One of the solutions that you talk about, or there's two words that are woven through the book as potential solutions or other approaches, right? And one is neighborliness, and the other is covenant. So let's start off with neighborliness. What is neighborliness, and how is that different than community, which is a pretty common word that's used these days. Is it the same thing, or are we talking about something different? I think they're cousins. Neighborliness is wider. Community is my sense of connection, my feeling of belonging and participation. Neighborliness is about the economy. It's about where I take my identity, how I raise my family. The product of neighborliness and community is to raise a child to provide livelihood, to keep me safe, to help me age, to welcome the stranger. So neighborliness more is to the point. It's more powerful, even though nobody, including me, understands it. But I think there's something in that word. It says it's a way of being together, where community is a little bit overused. And when something becomes popular, then you have to be a little nervous. But community also, you know, it's kind of interchangeable. But I think neighborliness is what the Jews discovered in the wilderness. And so I think if I feel a sense, if I live in a culture or context of neighborliness, then I know I'm in within walking distance of all the things I thought I had to drive to which is my health, my job, my children in the right school, my ability to shop. And so it's an it's a expression of locality. And it has, in my mind, only in my mind, it has an economic uh, core. And that's why the consumerism is the dominant narrative. Neighborliness is an alternative future. And I think we're headed that way anyway. The jobs are disappearing. Come on. We're not going to bring industry back to America. If we do, it'll be a, it'll be a $500 million tax benefit. It'll be a $300 million business with four people working there. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I don't think that both the nature of globalization and the nature of technology points to uh, a lot of job creation. It, it yeah, points so, to almost the opposite. And that's the enabliness to me means that you and I will construct a livelihood together based on our interdependence. Back to the wolf story. It's not just confronting my greed 
or confronting my choice to see generosity. It's what we create together, and we can create a livelihood together. And I'll end up, in the end, borrowing sugar from you again instead of going to a convenience store. Sugar's not good for you. I can't, I can't help you there, Peter. Well, but come over okay. for some whole grain flour, and I might be able to. Would, <laughs> flour? Well, that's not good for me. I want to. Uh, I want to. I want to. Flour-free diet. Yeah. So all right. Let's let's exchange vegetables. We yes, vegetables. I think we can all agree <laughs> on that. <laughs> so, talk to me about covenant. So the question is the di- distinction between covenant and, uh, to me, contract. So contract defines our relationship as quid pro. What are you going to do for me? Here's what I'm going to do for you. And to have a good contract, it has to be timely, specific. We know what it's a predictable way of being together. And most of the world, most of the culture believes in a contractual way of committing. And what's in it for me? You know, all these T-shirts for you. What's in it for me? All the feeding of, you know, uh, faith creating prosperity. It's like we're going to contract with God. If I do this, you do this. So all of that makes commodifies me, makes me an instrument of exchange. The word covenant means I'm going to make you a promise, and I have no idea what the hell is going to happen. So covenant has an element of faith that replaces exchange. And so the covenant's relationship with God, it has a faith dimension to it, but it's much more demanding. Contracts are easy. I can change my mind anytime I want and let you off the hook. Or if I don't, if it doesn't work out, I say, well, you let me down. Covenant, there's no out. There's no back door. And so it's an expression of my capacity as a free and uh, human being to decide what I'm committing to with no expectation of return. It's not dependent on anyone else. And so it's a covenantial relationship. It's, it has to do with fidelity. It doesn't have to do with delivery or performance. Contract is about performance. And as soon as you claim a person is a performer, you've stolen their humanity. But I'm only good for what I can produce. When Monica said, I know I'm part of a community, even and we got some sisters that do nothing. <laughs> and we're, okay. So in the contractual world, out you go. You know, come on. Uh, in the covenantal world, I don't care if you do nothing. I will do what I can to help you with your life. And so that's the, that's the distinction. And uh, that's existing in every relationship that really matters. If you have parents or children, if you have cousins and family and friendship, it's not conditional on their performance. That's not friendship. That's a deal. So it's a powerful concept that we've shrunken by limiting it to a biblical context. You're talking about covenant. We're talking about um community, you know, what you just said there is, you know, what mother, father, children, you know, we, we honor that relationship regardless. There's also, you actually use the phrase in the book that, that there's a shadow side of community, that there's a shadow side of this sort of thing. So let's, let's talk about that, because I, I think it's important to hear both sides of that. Me too. Without the shadow side, it's wishful thinking. It's Pollyanna. 
the wolf is at the door. And at times, community can be tribal, controlling. It's expressed in the general culture as like-mindedness. I want to be with like-minded people. In the general culture, it's expressed as a fear of the stranger. And so if my community, if our relationship is based as an against the other, against the stranger, and there's a part of me that wants to be on the winning side. That, you know, that's the, that's the other side of the wolf. And so there is, in some communities, we have the best community in the world except for those people, okay, from Section 8 housing that moved into three these three houses, and they're littering the ground. And, and I think, well, if you're such a great community, why don't you find out who these people are? Why don't you clean up after them? Why don't you welcome them to your social events, to your house? But there is a part of me that's just afraid. I, I was born. A friend of mine says we're wounded at the moment of birth. My humanity, Eve, ate the apple. What's that about? You know, she wasn't that hungry. <laughs> and so there's a part of me that is, is terrified of existence. I'm afraid of my freedom. That's what I think the fear is. I'm afraid of my loneliness. It, it frightens me, actually. I think, okay, I was given birth. What do I owe for that? How am I doing? And so I think the fear is a measure of our humanity, to be afraid. And so how do I deal with the fear? Well, I hold on. I try to be right. I try to look good. I want a life that I could edit and take out the bad parts, you know, not just a program. And so you have to acknowledge in Jungian terms, it's the shadow side. He swallowed the snake. What kind of meal was that? That he took the darkness of the snake and took it inside of him. He said, for me to be whole, uh, I have to embrace the shadow side. I have to, and all the mythology that he talks about is really about saying until you acknowledge. The process is that once I own my own self-centeredness, my own isolation, it loses control over me. It's in the denial of the shadow, in the denial of the dark, greedy wolf, that it owns me, and I become it in a masked and convoluted form. And so that parable, the answer is it's not just what you choose to see, but both are true. Otherwise, you end up with a TV sitcom as an expression <laughs> of life. So let's change directions a little bit. I want to talk about another book of yours, which has just a wonderful title that I'll just ask you to expound just on the title itself, which is The Answer to How is Yes. What are you getting at there? What I'm getting at is that as soon as somebody says, how are we going to do this? How much does it cost? How long does it take? I know they don't care at all about what we're talking about. And so having lived, become a system person, a corporate person, all of that, it seems the argument against possibility was always framed in the question of practicality. Oh, it takes too long. Where is it working? People who run large institutions are the most cautious people in the world. If you can't provide them with a predictable world, and so... It was the end of a chapter of a book I wrote on stewardship. 
And the publisher says, why don't you write a book about this? And so, you know, when anybody makes a suggestion, you have to resist it for four or five years. But then, to me, the how question uh, destroys our faith in each other. As if the only thing that matters is how long, how much, how predictable. And so I just kind of felt that it was to work, it was a, it was an anthem to people working in large organizations to say, give up your ambition and do something useful and meaningful without leaving. And don't be seduced by the practical. You know, people accused me of being an idealist, which is a major flaw. But I, now when they say you're too idealistic, I say thank you. I haven't dried up yet. Yeah, you've got a line from that work that says, transformation comes more from pursuing profound questions than seeking practical answers. And it reminds me of, you know, we the show we cover this area a lot, but the, uh, you know, the old Rilke quote about, you know, living the questions themselves. Don't seek answers, but live in the questions themselves. Questions bring us together. Answers alienate us. And so every time you or I have an answer, we think we know what's best for each other. And that's colonialism. I know what's best for you. And so it's an argument. In the question, we honor the mystery and unpredictability of a life. And to live in the question is to be uh, frustrated and anxious as a human condition. And uh, the question that grabbed me, I don't know if I had that yet when I wrote that book, was uh, what's the question that if you had an answer to would set you free? And somebody asked me that 20 years ago, and I thought, uh, good question. <laughs> and so I spent the last years of my life trying to say, what is the question? If I had an answer to it, would give me the freedom that I've been longing for. And I, lately, it, it, it's dawning on me I'm getting close to the question. But that question has animated my search for freedom. What I realized for myself is that I felt that somehow, because I was born, I owed something. That in the delivery room, at my birth, an invoice was delivered to me. And it was, uh, what have you done to justify the fact you had a, given a life? And so my question is to someone, you, God, have I done enough yet? And I got the question. I just don't have the answer. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, 
He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. It reminds me of Leonard Cohen in a book about songwriters. He he said something to that extent about, you know, how he rewrites, you know, lyrics so many, so many times. And he was, you know, this idea of redeeming the day, you know, was was such a big, a big thing to him. There was, there was a sense of, I mean, I guess covenant, right, in a way there. And I feel that all the time, that somehow to be given a, given a life, which I didn't even request, I don't think unless you talk to James Hillman, but I don't think. Okay. <laughs> Hillman thinks you've got a little daemon up there to put you in the right place before you're born. But I, I think that's a great question. Is And redemption is not out of guilt. It's out of our humanity and our sense that, uh, I don't know, I have to kind of uh, honor the fact that we've been given each other in a life. And, uh, and Leonard Cohen is a great example. I saw him interviewed once. And she said, you know, some of your songs are just breathtakingly profound and everything. Where is that place you go to to create Suzanne or Hallelujah? And he says, I don't know. If I knew where it was, I'd go there more often. <laughs> you know, listeners of the show have heard this 30 times, but he is the he was the number one guest I wanted to have on the show, which it never it never worked out, unfortunately. But at least we have his his legacy. And he started as a wealthy Montreal poet. Yep. And then he went to the village and became Lincoln. Yep. So we're near the end of time, but I want to wrap up with something that I read in an interview you did somewhere. And you were talking about how at some juncture in your life, there was a teacher of yours or a mentor of yours who sort of gave you the idea that the fact that you might be sad sometimes or anxious sometimes or that you would have negative feelings wasn't a problem to be solved, but was actually just part of being human. I remember the moment I can, I can tell you what the room looked like. All right. I can tell you where I sat in the auditorium. So this is Peter Kestenbaum. And I was in Stockholm doing a little workshop on something I was doing. So I thought, oh, it's a general session. I'll sit in. And he gets up there and he says, your anxiety, your loneliness, your sense of imperfection, the alienated part of your life means you're a human being. He wrote a book called The Vitality of Death. And I heard him talk for 20 minutes. And I said, whoops, because <laughs> up until then I was trying to get it right. And uh, and so I walked up to him and I said, where do you live? And he says, I live in San Jose. I said, can I come and see you? He says, yeah. And so that was a huge turning point that all the things I thought were wrong with me, my loneliness, my anxiety, my uh, wish for more, all of that. He said, this is the nature of being human. It turned everything around. Now, it's taken me a lifetime to get it. You know, but I think that's the point. So the point is that the world of certainty, consumerism, tells us in some way 
that there's something wrong with us. So if you can convince me of my deficiencies, you own me. Every performance review ever done, all right, every church, every whatever, that says there's something, you're born in sin, really. And uh, that means, oh, I got more to work on. Well, can you help me work on it? Of course I can, because I love you. Okay, so these, this is the fabric of uh, defending against our freedom. And so that, that was a big shift in my life, is to realize I'm not crazy. There's nothing wrong with me, and I'm not alone. And it kind of got me through a lot, even though I proceeded to mess things up on a consistent basis. It just didn't, I didn't draw conclusions about my failures. Yeah, I think it's Krishnamurti sort of taking this conversation all the way back to the beginning and the idea of, you know, the culture that we live in. You know, Krishnamurti said something to the effect of to be to be well-adjusted in a profoundly sick society is not a sign of health. Right. To, to be insane or sane and insane, that's a huge insight. Beautiful. And uh, where do you find that? See, I want to find that in the Saturday morning marketplace. I don't want to have to go to yoga like I did tonight to learn that. I want that to be the part of the fabric of our economic system, the fabric not only of our churches, but our, you know, what we do on weekends. You're bringing that into the world with your care and your questions, and I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for taking the time to come on. As I said earlier, the book is called An Other Kingdom. And we will have links in the show notes to where you can find that book and other things from Peter. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Thanks, Eric. Okay. Bye. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support.